Lasso. So just a few comments before we return to the practice of shamatha without a sign. Drawing from just give a tiny bit of commentary to the text that I read yesterday, which was a complete teaching. That was, that was all he had to say. So again, the teachings here tend to be very concise, however elaborate my commentaries may turn out to be on occasion. But we see in this, this kind of synthetic approach of the Penchener Moche from the 17th century, that as you do take the crucial step of just seeing how simple and how immediate it is to just let your awareness rest in its own space. I mean, you, you can do it in a finger snap, just there you are. And then from that, holding your own ground. And as someone brought out very clearly today in one of the one-on-one -on -one conversations, it's that stillness, the theme of stillness, 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 that recurs again and again. And where does the stillness come from? It comes from the release of grasping. Because as soon as the, the awareness is caught up in grasping, that's when we, sen we sense that we are in motion. Oh, I, I was caught up by this, and I was distracted by that, and so forth and so on. Well, all that movement after thoughts, sensory impressions, and so forth, all occurs because of grasping. Release the grasping, and what's left in that process of elimination is the natural stillness of your own awareness. And bear in mind, in Tibetan, the term that we translated as stillness is the same word we translate as stability. So when we think of a developmental approach to shamatha, then we're trying to train this wild steed, this wild elephant of the mind to make it more stable. We're trying to develop something that isn't there, right? The mind is rambunctious, it's restless, it's agitated. And so like a, like a horse that's been really frightened, traumatized, like as if it's in a burning barn, and you bring it out, the horse is freaking out. Well, there's no peace there at all. So then you need to gentle the horse, calm the horse with relaxation, stability, and then vividness will come later, later, right? And so there's that developmental approach when we're looking at the manifest mind, the mind that's kind of in our face. But we see there's this discovery approach, and that is when we release the grasping, then stillness is what's left. Stillness is waiting to be discovered as soon as it's not obscured by grasping. So stillness and absence of grasping are virtually synonymous. So, in this practice then, first of all, after settling body, speech, and mind, then we just come and we find that sweet spot of the awareness just resting in its own ground, holding its own, holding its own ground, resting in its own place. And then holding that, just, and holding that, of course, without grasping, that is, by releasing, holding onto anything else, this is what's left over. You're discovering the natural stillness and discovering the natural luminosity. And of course, the cognizance of your own awareness. And then while doing so, as Apinjana Muji then suggested, in its quintessential advice, you've got two primary options if you'd like to continue on this particular path or shamatha method. And that is as you're just remaining there, as soon as you see some thought that's inviting you out for a dance, inviting you out for an excursion, right? As soon as it comes up, you just flick it with the tiniest bit of effort effort just enough to release it immediately, and it, it's gone, and then you are. So if you're hovering there very much in the immediacy of the present moment, resting there right in the nature of awareness from which these thoughts arise, then as soon as they arise, like a little mouse, it just peeks its head above the, like a field mouse, it just peeks its head above the hole, looking around, oh, if there's a cat, down it goes. It just has to look, up and down. And so the little thoughts will peek up, but as soon as the cat of your awareness focusing right on that hole from which thoughts emerge, since the cat's right there and the hole's right here, that mouse will go, whoop, whoop, no thank you, and it's gone, right? And so it'll be very quick. And so that's the, the duel, the duel of the archer and the swordsman. That's that model. It's very crisp, very clean, very sharp. So you want to make sure that you don't get tense in that practice. But if you can be loose and exert just that tiny bit of effort just to flick them away, there's one approach. So you're familiar with that. But now we see in the same practice, it's still awareness of awareness. But in that same practice, then as you're resting that awareness, if a thought does arise, you simply note it. And now there's that other model of the raven that goes up and up and circles around and then having nowhere else to go, comes and lights back on the ship just as thoughts emerge from your awareness and then dissolve right back into your awareness, right? 
So there's that approach too. So it looks a little bit more like settling the mind in its natural state, but the primacy here, and it is, it does have that quality, but the primacy here is that you're the navigator staying on board your ship, right? That is, you're holding your own ground. You're not going for a flight. You're not up there with the raven and looking in all different directions, but you're staying in that stillness, resting there, aware of the thought, but you can see so lightly and not moved by it, not pulled by it, but just noting it, noting it until of its own accord, whether it takes one second or ten seconds, of its own accord, it just self-releases. It just dissolves of its own accord with no outside antidote. And there you are, resting right where the substrate consciousness is. So when you're doing this practice, are you is the awareness of which you are aware, is that something other than the substrate consciousness? I think it was Gudo that showed me, wasn't it, from uh, Longjemba, classic, massive text, big text by a massive uh, master, I mean, tremendous erudition, kind of like the Tsongkhapa for the, for the Nyingma order. Uh, but commenting that this substrate consciousness, or this excellent translator that translated this text, that Gudo showed me by Tukutundup, outstanding translator, he translated translates the alaya, or the substrate, as universal ground. And it's literally quite correct, because a, in this context, means all, and laya means ground, so all ground, universal ground. But again, it's the universal ground of your samsara. It's not a collective unconscious, and it's very clear that it's not rikpa. But there you are. Uh, is this alai and the alai vichnana, this substrate consciousness, is this something you experience only after you've achieved shamato, or after you've fallen into, into a lucid dream and then go into a lucid, dreamless state? And the answer is no. This awareness that you're experiencing, you can experience right now, and certainly in five minutes when we go into the session, that awareness is nothing other than substrate consciousness. It's not some other kind of consciousness. It is that consciousness. But it's that consciousness still somewhat veiled, somewhat configured. Uh, what's the another word? Yeah, configured. Configured or veiled by concepts by your coarse mind. That is, you didn't just turn off your coarse mind, which does happen then when your mind course sub utterly dissolves into the substrate consciousness. So when your coarse mind has dissolved and all that's left is the substrate consciousness, then you're getting it nakedly, unimpededly, without any adulteration. But when you start this session in four and a half minutes, then the awareness that you're experiencing is nothing other than substrate consciousness. But it's still sub substrate consciousness with the veils of your coarse mind, because it's still there. But there you are resting. And that's why I've given this analogy of that burning coal or that ember. That's, there it is. It, just, it doesn't have to do anything to just sink down to its own ground. And the ground is the substrate consciousness. So, the practice is very simple. You have those two options. They both lead to the same thing. Because, of course, over the course of time, these thoughts and so forth will gradually subside of their own accord, whether, whether you snuff them out immediately or you just let them dissolve their own accord. Either way, they're doomed. That is, when you do this practice, they will dissipate. They will subside. Your substrate will become empty, and your mind will dissolve into substrate consciousness. So the track is going in the same direction. But now, just this, just a, a brief reminder, because I've spoken at length, now very briefly. Here we are, resting in our best facsimile, as close as we can get to substrate consciousness. And what we're resting in is not something other than substrate consciousness. It's not another consciousness. It's substrate consciousness. But still more there on the surface where the coarse mind is. But it's not other than, because bear in mind, the mental awareness you have right now is nothing other than an effulgence of, an expression, an emergence from, Substrate consciousness. Nothing else. That's, that's its source. So it's not other than that, right? So there we are engaging in our best approximation, as close as we can get right now, to resting in the substrate consciousness and from that perspective, being aware of awareness itself, but also if we go for the raven, the raven and the navigator model, then we're also aware of the thoughts, images that arise, but again we're not moved by them. So it's as if we are, well, we're doing our best to view them from the perspective of the substrate consciousness. So that's familiar. A little bit, little bit of repetition. And now there's a little league, and then the big league, rikpa, textured, open presence. Remember there were four types of open presence. In open presence, we're doing something quite similar, but now on a much vaster 
scale. And once again, we don't have to wait until we've already achieved shamatha, already really realized emptiness, already really fathomed, had a, a, a profound realization of rikpa. That's optimal. Then you're fully qualified, definitely. But before all of that's happened, in open presence, if we were to do, do that right now, which not in this session, at your own leisure in the next session, um, right now, if we were to practice open presence, you know, and if you all had sufficient, you know, a little, maybe a little bit more introduction to the view and so on, then right now, you would, having settled body, speech, and mind in natural state, then you would rest, and I mean right now, you know, rest, and the awareness that you're experiencing right now, as you just rest with your awareness open, the awareness you're experiencing right now is not other than rikpa. It's not, they're not separate. They're not, they're not, they're not different. Does this mean that now you are a vidyadara? You know, you're a highly realized being because, oh, okay, good, I'm a vidyadara immediately. Of course not. But at the same time, the awareness you're experiencing right now when you just rest openly is not other than rikpa. Rikpa is there. It's, as they say, hidden in plain sight. It is manifesting. It is arising. It is current right now. It is displaying right now. All the appearances you're experiencing right now, they are already displays of rikpa. That's not something that happens later when you have deeper realization. So there you are in the texture practice, the breakthrough, resting in open presence. And you're giving it your best shot. You're coming as close as you can to resting without any grasping whatsoever, without any selectivity of focusing here or there, or even inside, just open. Whatever appearances arise, you note them, but without any grasping whatsoever, simply seeing them for what they are as pure displays, evenly, equally, pure displays of rikpa. And you simply perceive them as such because that's what they are. You don't have to imagine it. And you're experiencing the natural purity and luminosity of your own rikpa, and you rest there without doing anything. That's why it's called Buddhahood without meditation, because you're not, you're not meditating as in the sense of doing something. This is a radical not doing. And resting there, you allow for a pure discovery, I mean unmitigated, unadulterated, pure discovery of Buddha nature to rise up and engulf you. Okay. So the parallel is very strong, isn't it? One is you're resting on that relative level, resting in your closest facsimile, the substrate consciousness, not experiencing anything other than substrate consciousness, and yet not getting it without mediation, not getting it fully, right? And in this much deeper practice, you're re resting as close to rikpa as you can, and the awareness you're experiencing is not other than rikpa. The appearances you're aware of are not other than displays of rikpa. But are you fully realizing rikpa? No. But this is the trajectory. You're getting as close as you can, and then you allow, by releasing all grasping, we come back to that theme, but on a subtler, subtler, subtler level, releasing the grasping onto all concepts of all kinds, then there you are, and then you just break through. Now, end note, come back to Padmasambhava, if you wish now in this session to do some of the oscillation at your discretion, as much as it feels helpful, that inverting into just consciousness, releasing into space, the inverting into the agent who is doing the inverting and the releasing, and then the inverting into the observer, and then the release, that in that in that inversion and release, Padmasambhava, just to remind you finally, he said, that may be enough. If you're one of those people who is very well primed, a lot of momentum, a lot of purity, very little grasping, this little old shamatha practice, like the, what do you call it, the engine that could, something like that? It's a, ki a kid's, is it an engine? The little engine that could, yeah, that's cute. The little engine that could. We need to be about half, his, no, one third as young as I am to be able to remember this one clearly. Uh, but the little engine that could. The little engine is shamatha. It's not vipassana, perfection of wisdom, dzogchen. You know, these are the big engines. These are the big, great, big locomotives. But no, this is the little engine that could. Like little shamatha. Just little shamatha. Right? And by practicing little shamatha, just resting, oh, I'll just sit here and do nothing, and I just mind my own business. Awareness of awareness. You know? Oh. <laughs> You just may I just break on through. As they say, now this is my generation. 
break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side. Rikpa. You know, break right on through. Just, just allow that rikpa, that your psyche to dissolve into substrate consciousness and then just break right on through. That's tekchu. Breaking right on through to rikpa. This infinite open expanse of non-local atemporal awareness. And then you rest there and then you are a bona fide Dzogchen practitioner. And you might get there directly. It does happen. There's a lovely tuku. He taught here once. I, I, rec I asked that he'd be invited. He was, and he taught here. Ringu tuku. Ringu tuku. He's a kakyupa. Lovely lama. Very humble, very sweet, and also very knowledgeable. Uh, just very fine lama. And uh, he made this comment uh, that there are these two routes. One is more the kind of, one could say, the classic route of the shamatha, then realize emptiness, and then you go for the Dzogchen teachings. Classical sequence. Classic sequence. But he says it does happen that people with not necessarily even having realized shamatha, this also a very important point, and also corroborated by His Holiness Dalai Lama, that is it necessary to have achieved shamatha fully, the nine stages, the whole thing, before you can have some genuine realization of rikpa? The answer is no. You may have genuine realization of rikpa without having achieved shamatha. Yeah. So, so there it is. But he's saying that one route, okay, shamatha, vipassana, realization of emptiness, and then realization of rikpa, but he said it does happen the other way too. It happens the other way too, that people with some degree of stability, if they've achieved shamatha, all the better they'd be able to sustain the realization of rikpa. But some people will just kind of resting there, will go directly from the settling in the present moment, and then just without having prior realization of emptiness, they will realize rikpa, and through that realization of rikpa, they will realize the emptiness of all phenomena. Now, just one tiny quiz. Can you remember the, the parallel with lucid dreaming? It's, it's so cool. It's so strong. It's such a strong parallel. Okay, I'll just remind you. It's, it's worthwhile. It's a really good parallel. So imagine you're in, in the midst of a... No, let's, let's, I'll give you the shorter version. If you're in a dream, and it's a non-lucid dream, and then there's some anomaly. It might be a minor anomaly. One of you mentioned a couple of lucid dreams today in which the anomaly was quite minor. Like, oh, that's odd. But other ones, it's pigs flying. It's something really quite odd. Uh, you know, but whatever it is, how much, however much of an anomaly it requires, but it's a, a sufficient anomaly that you recognize, ah, I'm dreaming. And insofar, that is a clear ascertainment that you're recognizing the dream as the dream. In other words, you're awake within the dream. Then by the power of that one realization alone, then you already know that everything that's appearing to you is not existing by its own inherent nature, from its own side, it's not truly existent. If you still think that, you're not very lucid, right? You really haven't gotten it, because you, you just don't know it's a dream. If you know it's a dream, then you have to know that. Hey, it's a dream. Nobody's really there, right? So there it is. But now you could imagine being in a non-lucid dream and practicing vipassana. And there you are in the midst of your, not even knowing it's a dream, but starting to investigate the nature of phenomena subjective and objective, and then seeing as you investigate point by point, oh, in fact, upon very careful investigation, contemplative inquiry, that none of these objective phenomena exist from their own side. And then you probe into the nature of your own mind. You say, ah, that doesn't exist from its own side, not inherently existent. And you start to realize the emptiness of all objective and subjective phenomena within what the, the awake person knows to be your dream, and having realized that, then you, when you're, when you're not formally in meditation and you come out, it's almost like it makes a person who is awake just burst into laughter. Because there you are, having just come out of your Vipassana meditation, and from the waking perspective, you're still in the dream. And then you're looking around, and you're saying, wow, this is really like a dream. And that's when all the, the, you know, the clairvoyant awake people just burst into laughter. Oh my goodness, how close are you? you know, you're so close. Just drop out the light part, you silly sap. You know? And in a lot of the Dzogchen literature, you find the, the, the true masters. The true masters. They'll be writing these verses, like Milarepa just sang. And many of the great Dzogchen masters and Mahamudra masters, they'll write in verse, just the verse, they're called uh, the verses or the songs of realization, right? where they're just spontaneously writing verse, in poetry, that is, uh, but coming directly out of their realization. And I've read quite a few of them in which they'll, they'll write about the nature of Rikpa and so forth, and then they'll say, ha-ha! You know, they're, they're just trying to show, like, they're just bubbling over with laughter, you know, that in a way it's such a joke. 
that here's all these people who are still you know, in the dream, and they don't get it. It's again like, come on, and they're just laughing. So in this person who's in the awakened person's, what he knows to be a dream, is saying, wow, this is so much like a dream, like a dream. In which case, then one of the awakened people, the, the wake people monitoring from outside, says, okay, I've got to, I've got to become a tuku and, and take rebirth in this guy's dream. I've got to take rebirth. This guy is so close. I've got to take rebirth. Okay, I'm going to sleep now. And then, and then crops up in the dreamer's dream. Right? They're saying, wow, this is, such, this is so much like a dream. And then, and then Cecil, the enlightened one, comes in. Then, Alan, this is not like a dream. This is a dream. Oh. <laughs> and then you have your breakthrough. But you're so close, you know, and you're already thinking, boy, it's like a dream, like a dream. And then finally, somebody just goes, oh, you mean it is a dream? Well, yeah, now that you mention it, you know, and you break through. So you may get it from the gradual approach of realization of emptiness first, getting all primed, and then get your Dzogchen, your Mahamudra, right? Or you may just get it straight, just recognize it's a dream, and then you see implicitly, but that means, of course, nothing here exists from its own side, objectively or subjectively, okay? So as I'm just listening to the words coming out, it just strikes me there's such an aesthetic here. I often talk about Buddhist contemplative science, science this, science that, and so forth. And it is. It is knowledge. It is, it is knowledge. It is a science. But as I just reflect upon and just stand back and kind of just enjoy the scenery, I say, wow, it's beautiful. It just has a beauty to it, let alone all the power of it, the, inc the incisiveness, the penetration, and all of that. But just the way all these pieces fit together, to my mind, there's just such an aesthetic about it. To sometimes just say, wow, that's beautiful. So, namo, namo to the Dhamma. Let's practice. Let's jump in. Olaso. Mail is stacked up here, so I'll try to give concise answers. We can also have some time for open discussion, I hope, presume. So, here's, uh, here's a question, anonymous. I would appreciate your suggestions concerning what to do when someone is very self-absorbed and only talks about their problems in great detail. I've tried giving them space to air their grievances and have found the more I listen, the more stories are entrenched. I would like to correct, I'd like to cor correct, but come away feeling, I'd like to connect, but come away feeling drained. This pattern continues and feels very feels dissatisfying and very stuck. So I'm sure you're not the only one. And I did read this earlier, so I had a bit of time to reflect. When any of us are in this mode, and I imagine we've all been in that mode, sometimes just really wanting to get some energy out and complain about something. I, I've been in that mode. Perhaps you have as well. It's just like some pressure is built up, and the person just feels an, an imperative, like an obsessive, compulsive, I've got to find somebody to listen to me. It's not satisfying just to talk to myself. You want, you want to come for a walk? I, I have some of that I'd like to share with you. <laughs> And it's basically like vomiting. You know, when you, we've all had nausea, and you know what it's like when you really, you really just really want to vomit, you kind of almost go, uh, uh, so you get it out, and then when it comes, it really rips. <laughs> this is a kind of vomiting, right? And so I'd really like to share something with you. Oh yeah? <laughs> and then we listen. Now there's various responses to that. One thing is we can, can get into it. Like if we both feel we can complain about the same person, <laughs> the image has now come up. <laughs> You're both definitely ready for a shower by the time the conversation's over. <laughs> and so how do you diffuse it? Because although there is, we all know what it's like. That's why we're laughing, because it's so familiar, right? We're not talking about some other species here. And when you've done it, you feel a little bit of relief, like, OK, I was able to get that off my chest. The pro problem is, now it's not just on your chest. It's all over your body. You know, the <laughs> you know it's out, but the, the smell is still there, right? And then it's just bound to build up again. So an alternative strategy, because I know, I think we all resonate with both sides of it, both the complainer and the, the person who's receiving the complaint. Um, and here's a suggestion. When a person comes to us and then starts to 
you know, regurgitate in this way, let them speak for a while because they really want to. And this is part of friendship. We don't just, I know this with my wife. Sometimes she wants to say something negative and I don't want to hear it. She says, oh, you mean the only time I get to speak with you is I'm saying something really pleasant. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Disgorge away, <laughs> you know. So there's got to be a middle way here. We can't just say, I'm sorry, I just don't, I just don't listen to negative things. Like, <laughs> that doesn't work either. This has got to be some, a third strategy here. Here's a suggestion. You might try it out. And when you, when you see that the, this disgorge isn't taking place, let it flow. Let the person have the monologue. They generally don't want to be interrupted. <laughs> isn't it true? And just let it flow until they're taking a breath. You know, but... <sighs> <laughs> and when you see some of the energy dissipating, like maybe they're ready for a response, maybe they're ready for you to start vomiting with them or sympathizing with them or something, you know, um, surprise them. Not, of course, not by being judgmental. That doesn't help. But, ah, I listen to you. I see, yeah, there there's really seems to be something like this. There seems to be, I see, yeah, you look like you're complaining about something that's, you know, really distressing. Or you're certainly distressed, and I really get it, I understand, I really sympathize. And then immediately turn it to, what, what do you think constructive could be done about this? And don't tell them, because then you'll be preaching, and they may really not want to hear, but draw it out. So I, this is a, I see it's causing you a lot of distress, and I really understand why, and I sympathize. I'd be distressed too. What do you think could be done? Where is this a solution here? What, what, what do you think? And suddenly, the energy has to totally change, because you can't continue complaining while at the same time expressing a solution. That can't happen in the same sentence. So it has to be a different type of energy. Now it has to be constructive. Now it has to looking, be looking for a path to liberation, rather than simply circling around in a, in a, in a circle of an ocean of misery. So that might be a skillful means. And if the person says, gosh, I, I, I don't know. I'm stuck. I can't think of anything. I'm just stuck, then they may there may be a little pause there. And then you might be able to suggest something. Well, have you considered this? But keep on drawing it out. Again, just giving them a sermon probably won't help so much. But give them enough to work with so you see their creative juices starting to flow. Oh, that's true. Maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe I could have done that. Or maybe I can do this in the future. Yeah, maybe there's a solution here. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. And then they never feel they're being shut down, judged, blocked, sermonized, and so forth. Actually, it's just drawing out another, another element of their own minds. Bearing in mind, there's something really quite brilliant from Buddhist psychology here. And that is, we have these many mental factors, a whole bunch of ones that are by nature wholesome, compassion, generosity, and so forth. Other ones that are by nature afflictive, hatred, greed, and so forth and so on. And they're kind of like cadres. It's like, you know, you're either Republican or Democrat or whatever. I mean, you, you belong to that party. So just by nature, there's some that are just, when they, they are by nature wholesome, and others by nature are afflictive. And then we have this, this, this swing vote, <laughs> really, the political analogy, not, not that bad. The swing vote, the independent, the independent voters, and that's intelligence, creativity, concentration, memory, did I say intelligence, you know, those, and they can either go wholesome or unwholesome, right? And they're the swing vote. They're the swing vote. They can be, you can give all of that to something really evil, all of the same mental factors can be devoted to something marvelously wholesome, but they're not by nature wholesome or unwholesome. They'll go, they'll go with the flow, right? And so what's happened here when we try to understand this in terms of Buddhist psychology, when a person is really speaking out of a lot of complaining, it's probably coming out of anger, probably some self-righteousness that I'm better than the person I'm complaining about. So there's probably some pride there, clearly some anger, resentment. Uh, there may be jealousy, who knows, other mental factors. But... That's the, the party in power. That's the party in power at that time. There's another party there. Nobody has only mental afflictions. You, you name it. Take the biggest villains of history. They all have both. They all have both. But in the great villains of history, one party tends to be in power a long time, or dominantly so. And the alternative party, of the, whole, the wholesome party, uh, they don't tend to get, you know, get into power that, that often. But when a person is in that mode, mostly the mind is dominated by unwholesome or men afflictive mental processes. And so when those mental processes have had their chance to you know, express themselves through speech, and they spend themselves, or they exhaust themselves a little bit, then it's another election. 
election time has come around. And you kind of invite in the other party by inviting, okay, now that was, we, we, heard, the, we heard that party. Now, does anybody in your Congress of your mind uh, does you have any constructive suggestions here? And what's the solution? And that's not going to come from anger and delusion and self-righteousness and, and envy and greed. It's not, they're going to come up with a solution. They're part of the problem. So when you invite, when you call forth, well, what do you think constructive can be done here? You're calling on the other party. And then you're calling on intelligence, creativity, memory, imagination, and all of that. Uh, speak now and conjoin with people who are looking for a solution, for peace, for, for harmony what you really want for happiness, and try to vote the other party in. And so the person then starts to think with all the swing vote, intelligence, all of that, but now really more of the wholesome. And then the person is healing him or herself. Yeah. Well, Buddhist psychology, I find it really quite brilliant. Mama. So there's that. And then when the time is ripe, and you feel the person really would be receptive to this, then bring out the, the, one of the greatest slogans from Shantideva. I mean, really, it's a, it's a winner. Sometimes really irritating to hear because we know it's true and we haven't done it. And that is when something comes up that really we want to complain about, then Shantideva says, oh, something to complain about, something you don't like. Well, if there's something you can do about it, do it, and why be unhappy? And if there's nothing you can do about it, then why be unhappy? Hmm. And which, then why bother to complain? Why bother complain at all? If you can do something about it, don't complain. Just do it and be happy. There's nothing you do about it. Why are you, saying, why are you making yourself more unhappy? The other person already gave you some unhappiness, and now you're going home and putting more money in that bank account. You may be this unhappy, and I'm going to make myself twice as unhappy. By eh, 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 eh. So Shantideva nails it. He's quite ruthless. Quite ruthless with our mental complaints. Do the Theravadans think of themselves as belonging to a small vehicle? No, never, as the Tibetan Buddhists have categorized them. That, uh, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a false question. It's not the Tibetan, of course, you've heard this from Tibetan Buddhists, but it's not the Tibetan Buddhism. And the Dalai Lama has, has addressed this very explicitly. Uh, it's not Tibetan Buddhism. It would be like, I don't know. It's way before them. It's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Tibetan Buddhism ever showed up, before any of the Indian pundits and sages ever went to Tibet. This is Indian. And it goes back a good 2,000 years. And that's a distinction between Mahayana and so-called Hinayana. The term Hinayana, there's no question about it. It's pejorative. It's a lesser vehicle. It's a lesser vehicle. Do the Theravadans think they follow a lesser vehicle? Good heavens, no. Of course not. No. They're following Theravada. And what are you following? We're following the Buddhist teachings as recorded in the Pali Canon. And what is he teaching? He's teaching how to achieve liberation. Uh, does, it, does, does that path have a name? Yes, the Buddha called them shravakas. Those following our path are called shravakas. Those who listen to the teachings and, and enable other people to hear the teachings. In Tibetan, nyen tu. So we're following the shravaka path. That, that's the term used by the Buddha in the Pali Canon. Savaka, it's called. Savaka. And so this is a path to find liberation. Uh, and then if you ask a Theravadan, well, are there any other paths that the Buddha taught in the Pali Canon? Other kind of strategies or trajectories? Uh, or vehicles, no, but never mind vehicles, just path. And he said, yeah, there's these, in Sanskrit, Prateka Buddha, or Pateka Buddha, Pateka Buddha in, in Pali, and these are these solitary realizers who, when finally it comes for their, in, in their lifetime to achieve liberation, they do so without resorting to or relying upon some other teacher. They've had so much momentum from past lives and encountering teachers in the past, and they have this prayer, it's almost like the really strong, strong individual mind, not egotism, but the aspiration, when it comes time for me to, be, to be liberated, I'd like to do so in a context where there are very few liberated people. And I will do it on my own without having to seek a teacher out, because there may be no teachers. So maybe I, so, maybe I, so, may I be so ripe that when there are so few teachers around, maybe none to be found, I will bring such momentum to that life that I will achieve liberation, liberation, become an arhat, a prajika buddha, by myself without relying upon a teacher who may not be there. So that's not a selfish or trivial motivation. So did the Buddha teach that? You can ask of the Theravadan. He said, yes, he, he taught that. This is part of the Pali Canon, part of the Buddha's teachings. The, 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 I'll just keep with Sanskrit. The Shravakas, so many of the disciples of the Buddha, became Shravaka Arhats. It's not a pejorative term at all, following their own liberation, and they achieve it. And then others not during the time of the Buddha, but they would speak of you know, a long, long time ago when there are no Buddhas around. There would be these Pateka Buddhas who would rise up 
with their own, just their own genius and achieve liberation. And then quite interestingly, it's hard for me to give a short answer, isn't it? Uh, quite interestingly, there they are when the, the landscape is quite barren of dharma, very little dharma, in terms of Buddha dharma anyway. Very barren. And so when these Pratika Buddhas teach, once they've achieved liberation, very often the way they would teach would be by displaying what we'd call, well, cities, cities, by displaying, displaying paranormal or miraculous behavior. And that would catch people's attention. Because these are often very, very kind of primitive times, not spiritual times. But if a person comes along who's quite obviously quite pure, not just a magician, but has great purity, and then on top of that shows, shows you know, some really jaw-dropping cities, that, that impresses people. It catches their attention. And it gives them the sense, wow, you must really know something. If you can do that, you must know something I don't know. Uh, tell me. Please teach me. And then they may give teachings then. But then if you ask a Theravadan, well, did the, Buddha, did the Buddha not make any references to a path of the Bodhisattva? After, was, after all, wasn't he a Bodhisattva? And the answer, of course he was a Bodhisattva. That's true in all Buddhist schools. And so did the Buddha make any references to Bodhisattvas? Yes, the Bodhisattva Maitreya, and then many other Bodhisattvas who will eventually become Buddhas. But now is that Bodhisattva the, the specific unique qualities of a Bodhisattva path? You know, what distinguishes that path from that of a Pratyeka Buddha or a Shravaka? Are, are the details of a Bodhisattva path culminating in perfect enlightenment, are those spelled out, are those taught in the Pali Canon? The answer, I'm answering as a person who would, as a Theravadan, they're taught, but not very elaborately. There's ten paramitas, ten perfections, um, but there's not a whole lot of elaboration there. There's references to them here and there, but rather spotty and so forth. But are all, all, right, coming right back, final time, you mean in the Buddhist teachings, all three of these are taught. The Shravakayana, the, or path, the Pratyeka Buddha path, the Bodhisattva path. The Buddhas refer to all of these. These are authentic. They all lead to different culminations. Is that true? The answer is, yes, it is. Pali Canon Theravada Buddhism. Yes, it is. So there it is. There's common ground. Now, what we see in the Mahayana Canon, in the, the Mahayana teaching, the perfection of wisdoms, perfection of wisdom sutras, the Diamond Cutter Sutra, the, so, many, so many sutras that are Mahayana, is now, from the Mahayana perspective, these were from the Mahayana, I'm speaking just, this is a factual statement, from the Mahayana tradition, then these Mahayana sutras are attributed to the historical Buddha. The great majority, if not all of them, are attributed to the historical Buddha, but the sense was from the Buddha that this was not time, at, during his lifetime, 2,500 years ago, society, the society he was engaging with, in their kind of cultural evolution, they weren't ready. As a culture, they weren't ripe yet for these teachings become proliferating, you know, really become very public. So they were, they, were, they were taught, but then they were carried off to the domain of the Nagas. They were carried off to the, deva, the realms of the Devas, and they preserved them, and they taught them. And the only really public teaching was a little schmidgen here and there of the Bodhisattva path, a little schmidgen here and there of the Prajega Buddha path, and then lots and lots of public teachings about the Shravaka path. And that was considered to be Dharma. That's what they assembled in this great assembly, oh, just very short time after the Buddha's Parinirvana. It was those teachings that were meant to be public at that time. That's the Pali Canon. And the Theravada tradition is entirely based upon that. right? But according to Mahayana, and not Theravada, roughly 400 years later, something like that, then there were people like Nagarjuna and others who traveled to this other land. They were already adepts. Nagarjuna going, Naga Arjuna, one who had achieved Naga status, he wasn't a Naga, but he was able to go to Nagaland, which is actually a part of India, I think, not that, but this other realm, and then receive these Prajapanamita Sutras from the Nagas, who were holding them in wait until our human population was ready for these to be public. He brought them back. Others they came in from various sources. And about 2,000 years ago then, when the Mayana became public, interesting, just about the time of Jesus, then they spread like wildfire. They just spread all over Central Asia, all the way over to oh, it was Iran. They went as far as west as Iran. They went way up to Korea and down, way down to Southeast Asia, down to Indonesia, down to Sri Lanka, all over India, and then quickly up into Kashmir, Nepal, and then eventually on to Tibet. They really spread like wildfire. So from that perspective, from this, and it's in the teachings, the, the teachings attributed to the Buddha, the Mahayana Sutras, that's where you find Hinayana. That term is only used from a Mahayana perspective. And then why? Is it mere just sectarianism, nastiness, arrogance, condescension? Of course you can look at it that way if you like. 
But from inside the tradition, inside the Mahayana tradition, it's not disparaging people. It's simply saying, look, this is another yana, another path, another vehicle that the Buddha did teach. We're agreed on that. Here are the elaborate teachings, the big, the big show, this vast array of Mahayana sutras, and there are a lot of them about the whole Bodhisattva way of life. There, must, there are dozens, scores, who knows, even hundreds of sutras that are Mahayana sutras. And it's all about the path the Buddha himself followed. Because he didn't follow the Shravakayana. He didn't follow the Pratyeka Buddhayana. He followed the Bodhisattvayana. And so now, what was the path you followed? Well, boom, there it is, extravaganza of many, many Mahayana sutras. And from that perspective, <coughs> it is said, this is not only Bodhisattvayana, this is Mahayana. This is a great vehicle. And why? Because the motivation is greater. Rather than seeking simply one's own liberation, aspiring to achieve nirvana, and then going out like a light and never manifesting in the world again and never doing anything in the world again, just finding your own immutable bliss, that's one aspiration. And it's authentic. But now compare that motivation of achieving over just a matter of some lifetimes, achieving your own liberation and then dissolving into, immersing into nirvana and never coming back, so there's one, and now consider this, the aspiration to achieve the perfect enlightenment of a Buddha in order to serve all sentient beings until every single one is liberated. Now which of these do you think is a greater aspiration? Which is a greater path? Here are the teachings on emptiness, here are the teachings of personal identitylessness in the Pali Canon. Which of these do you think is, is larger? And so both in terms of view and motivation, and in terms of the fruition, as well as the initial motivation, they say, you know, one of these is greater. We're going to call this great, and relative to the great, this is small. Not stupid, mean, selfish, and so forth. It just, relatively speaking, it's smaller. So there it is, but we're talking about a path and not about, oh, you're inferior, you're inferior, you're inferior, I'm inferior, I'm, I'm, I'm what, superior. So I was introduced to this a long time ago by Geshe Rapton, and I, I just remember his point. And he said, you know, never even dream of looking down on our heart. Uh, an arhat, who, who's come to culmination of Shravakayana, or those who become aryas, who achieve stream entry and so forth. He's talking to his you know, disciples, including me. They said, you know, you're in no position to look down on anybody. <laughs> so sorry, but not anybody. So don't even dream about it. Is Mayana greater than the Hinayana? Yes, it is, for those reasons. But then when you start looking at individuals, when I look at my teacher, Balagoda Anana Maitreya, Oh, man, for me to think, even, even have a, a thought for a second, oh, yes, I'm going to look down on him because he's Theravada. Yeah, let me eat shit first. <laughs> that would be a more authentic thing to do. You know, that would just be so, are you out of your gourd? Are you just going insane? You know? And then he says, you know, and Geshe Rapton saying, continue. You know, look at any really solid, authentic Theravada practitioner. You know, that's how they're manifesting. Do you know... Gawinka's teacher, for example, Ubakin. Gawinka always, always referred to him as a bodhisattva. I mean, I heard, I heard his course. He, whenever he referred to his teacher, great Theravada teacher, I always say bodhisattva. So how about for me? Am I in a position to say, I'm sorry, Mr. Gawinka, but your teacher was not a bodhisattva. He was a Theravada. What's my basis for that? Nothing. So though you may manifest as Theravada, maybe a great Theravada teacher, like my own teacher, Ananda Maitreya, how do we know that he's not a bodhisattva? And then people that are following some Tibetan Buddhist tradition. I'm a Kagyupa, I'm a Dzogchenpa, I'm a Gulupa. Oh, very good. Are you a Mahayana? Oh, yes, I'm following Mahayana. Good, are you a bodhisattva? And time for me to take some water. <laughs> when the Dalai Lama says, I'm not a bodhisattva, he's been asked, are you a bodhisattva? No, I'm not, I'm not the bodhisattva. I aspire to be a bodhisattva. I have great admiration for bodhicitta. I am not a bodhisattva. So be careful. That's gyatrimache. Be careful. We're not in a position to look down on anybody at any time. I'm asking this question as I know you have spent some years practicing with Theravada, Theravada Master. Yes, I have, with great, great reverence. He's my teacher. I'm his disciple. Oh, yeah. How many teachers exist who are qualified to lead a one-year shamatha retreat, and how many of them are Westerners? I have no idea. 
how many of you are qualified? I'd have to be clairvoyant. And I'd also have to know all of the 7 billion people on the planet. And so I'm not being cute here. I just don't know. Uh, there's so many areas. I, I mentioned maybe it'd be even cool to watch. Uh, I have it on the, I, I can put it on my flash drive, that movie that you gave the right, the right title to, Amongst the White Clouds? Yeah. Amongst the White Clouds. I've been to China, but I've, I've never met such extraordinary practitioners, because I've just gone there to go to Tibet. So I really know so little about Chinese Buddhism. But you see those monks and nuns in that, in that movie, and you say, oh, wow, those are pure practitioners. You know? So amongst them, for example, hidden back in the jungles of, of yeah, really, like jungle of central China, are there some there who are really qualified shamatha practitioners and could lead? How would I know? They're certainly uh, extraordinary practitioners. And then I've, never, I've been to Korea, but the airport, that doesn't count. So you know, I'm just going on my way to Mongolia or whatever. So I don't know, could there be some in South Korea? Could be. Taiwan, I've been to the airport. <laughs> I don't know, there could be. This friend of mine, a Roman Catholic priest, he said there were people in Taiwan, Taiwan uh, Taoists, who achieved rainbow body. Could they, achieve, could they teach shamatha? I think so. How about Burma? I've never been there at all. A lot of practitioners. Thailand, we have all those forest hermitages. Might there be some? I don't know. I've been, I haven't been up there. I've been to Bangkok, and a little around Bangkok, and then here. I don't know. Sri Lanka, I've lived there for five months, but there are a lot of retreat centers there. And just outside of between Colombo and Kandy, when I was there, I was told by my teacher, Ananda Maitreya, there's one retreat center. Now, this is 1980, 81. He says, one retreat center, and this is from him. He said, they're achieving jhanas. A lot of people talk about it, and it's baloney. It's counterfeit money, a lot of it, but not from Ananda Maitreya. He absolutely knew what he was talking about. He said, there they're achieving, achieving jhanas, and because they're achieving jhanas, they're also achieving cities. If you achieve jhanas, there's just no reason you shouldn't have cities. So if a person says, oh, I've achieved second, third jhana, oh, it's good, show me a miracle. You know, and then they jigs up. So, but there was a monastery then. Maybe it's still there. I don't know. So that's the real honest answer. How many Westerners? Gosh, I don't know. I only know a few myself. So I don't know. Do I know of any? I don't know. I'm just ignorant. So I don't know. What would it take to arrange one like in 1988? The first thing is really, um, first thing is finding a suitable environment. And back in 1988, uh, I was teaching in the summers from 19, what was it, 19... 84 to 86, 86, spring, yeah, beginning of 87. I was finished my undergraduate degree on the East Coast. In the summers, I was teaching in Seattle, Washington, and then kind of aroused the interest for a one-year retreat. And a friend of mine who already had land about two hours south of Seattle, then he created a facility for that retreat. And then we moved in for the first year. And now it's a thriving Dharma Center, lots and lots of retreats taking place there. Right? But he created it for us. Uh, he couldn't create the weather, where it rains about 300 days a year. And he couldn't create the temperature, which is cold most of the year. And he couldn't create the environment, because we're closed in by a really heavy forest. And he couldn't create the latitude, where it's dark a good deal of the year. But given all of those constraints, he created a very nice environment. But he created it for us. Right? Um, so that's the first thing, is, is find, find or create an environment. And, pu and put up the individual rooms or kutis, that is, or cottages, meditation huts, and then see what can come. Okay? So that would be it. And then, of course, having a teacher would be helpful. Can we get a show of hands who in this room might be interested in participating in something like this? And this is from Miles. Sure, why not? How many people would be, not, not that your wish is going to be granted, but <laughs> what's the interest? Why not? Sure, I, you, you ask. I don't see any reason not to. How many people would be interested in it sooner or later? you know, within some time, foreseeable future, a one-year retreat. I'm just going to count them for people on podcast. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. Podcast, did you hear? <laughs> that would make a really, if 26 people gathered in one place for a one-year retreat, I think that'd be very cool. Because what I've witnessed over the years is that there really is something to be said for critical mass. I'll give an analogy. Um, I'm sorry, I'm just no good at short answers. I suck at short answers, so there it is, you know, mea culpa. Um, but years ago, 40 years ago, when I was receiving Geshe Rapin's life story, I, I, I wrote down his autobiography through question and answer. He told me about, in his 24-year training, intensive training, 
as a Galupa monk to become a Geshe, and a first-rate Geshe, finishing the whole course of, of tremendously intense uh, training in Buddhism. There was a phase when he was about, been in it for about 12, 10, 12 years, when for four years, four years, they're studying and debating and immersing themselves in the Majamika, the Majamaka, the Majamaka view, the middle way view, the perfection of wisdom, teachings on emptiness. For four years, that's their topic. One topic, four years, right? And during that time, he told me the regimen, the daily routine. And it frequently, during that year, they would have some breaks where they would go off and memorize texts and, mem and meditate and so on. But when they're on, like the full academic term is on in this monastic university with about 8,000 monks, when they're on, they would have instruction during the daytime. They'd memorize texts during the daytime. And then they would, there would be chanting and ritual practice and so forth, and maybe some preliminary practices. But then as the sun went down, this was for about two years, when the sun went down, or no, it was four years, four years, that whole period. When the sun went down, then the, the monks in their class would go out on the debating courtyard outside. This is at about 4,000 meters elevation. And this would be at any season, right through the midwinter at 4,000 meters. They would, when the sun goes down, then they would go out on the debating courtyard. And the whole class, when I had this training, there were about 30 monks in our class. So I don't know how many in his class, but I did this in India years later, of course. But then the monks would be, would, one by one, they would be debating with two monks who would be answering, answering the questions. And one by one, they would propose their, their debates. And it would go on for some time, and then they'd sit down, and another, person would, another monk would come up and debate. Well, the, the senior most monks, they got to present their debates first. So for example, it would be Sally and Meek. You'd be sitting, responding to questions, and the rest of us would come up, and then we would present you with the, the gnarliest question we could pertaining to the Majam, you know, what we'd been studying recently. And the debate, and you'd be answering back, and we have all the, you know, the, the, the debate, and it's really vigorous. But the oldest ones, let's imagine I'm senior, I'm about to graduate from this class, I get to come up first. And then I debate for a while, 15, 20 minutes, whatever, and then, okay, we work through it, and I sit down. It's, I have, I've had my turn. Well, let's imagine who's really young here. Okay, um, Harald, you're young. So Harald is just a freshman within this four-year training, Harald gets to listen, to, and let's imagine he's the youngest one here. All the rest of us being senior, right? Imagine I'm senior class, and Anna's senior class, Claudia's senior class. So the three of us, we debate, and then we, you know, we're finished by 7 o'clock. We can go back to our rooms, sleep, meditate, whatever. We've, we're finished. But Harald, he has to wait for everybody else to have their turn, which means he gets his turn around dawn, because they go through the night. He gets his turn at dawn. Sally and Meek are there the whole time answering the questions all the way through. Finally, everybody else is left. And Harold gets this. <laughs> <laughs> and he gets his turn. But this means that night after night after night, he's getting hardly any sleep at all. Because at dawn, they're blowing the conch shell. And it's time to go to the General Assembly to, re to recite the morning prayers, the Heart Sutra, and so forth. And so I asked Geshe Rapton, for that first couple of years, you're a low man on the totem pole. You're not getting to bed until, I don't know, 5 to 6 in the morning. Or then it's 4 to 6 in the morning, and then it's 3 to 6. You're, how did you do that? How is that humanly possible? And his answer was, everybody else was doing it. That's it. It was group energy. Of course, what are you, what are you a knucklehead? What are you, a dope? What are you, a slacker? A lazy bum? Everybody else is doing this. Why aren't you doing it? So it was that group energy. That group energy, it was kind of riding a wave of this is, this is how you do it. And then you get your seniority and, then you, seniority, and then you go to bed earlier. But this is how. And he said some of the monks, I think some of the monks would really straight right, right on through. And after they have turned, then they would just go right into meditation. While other monks are debating, they would just go in and, gain, and just be meditating in emptiness, while the other ones are clapping their hands and doing their song and dance. So as that was true in a monastic university, it just brings out this power. You know, this, a real surge of energy that is collective, a group energy. What would it be like to have 26 people in one place with a qualified teacher, conducive environment for at least a year, where everybody's there to support, everybody's shared vision? And again, you can be Kagyu, Nyingma, Theravada, Zen, I don't care. That's not the issue, but really all there with a concerted vision. This is to really go as deeply as we possibly can and to, to really achieve shamatha. That'd be extraordinary. 
So we all knew back 24 years ago when we ran this, it was an absolutely pioneering attempt. It had never been done before in the West. And I don't know how long, uh, how long it's been since there was a one-year retreat set up in Tibet. That's not the kind of thing they would do. A one-year shamatha retreat, they would either go into retreat to achieve shamatha or do it for a month or whatever. But it might have been the first time in a very long time anybody had done a one-year retreat. And Gelam Rimba, who came, we invited him specifically to lead this retreat, and I was his apprentice. He came from his holiness, asked him to. I mean, I asked, I asked Gelam Rimba, and then he turned to his holiness and said, Alan's asked me to come, come out of retreat, break his own retreat. And so he said, well, I'll check with his holiness. His holiness said, yeah, it would be beneficial for you to go. Well, for a, for a monk like Gelam Rimba, that just doesn't require any more cogitation. His holiness asks you to go, you go. Right? So he came. But he told me when, when he came, he said, you know, I'm really dubious that any of you are going to get anywhere. You know, he'd hardly met any Westerners. Maybe he was taking me as an example. If you're all, you're all like Alan, you know, you're, really <laughs> you're a train wreck, I don't know. But he, he just wasn't, you know, he doesn't know anything about it fundamentally. And, and there it was. But then as the months went by, and he saw how people did, he said, wow, I'm surprised. Um, <laughs> I have to tell the analogy. This is just about an hour or two north of Portland, Oregon. And during that retreat, we'd have little breaks, and somebody took him down to a zoo. No, 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 a circus, a circus. A circus with you know, elephants, tigers, and so forth. And uh, he was amazed. He'd never seen anything like this. They don't have circuses in Tibet, let alone with elephants, tigers, lions, and so forth. And he saw he saw how these great, ferocious, powerful beasts that's so much stronger than a human being, how they could get to be jumped through hoops and do all these kind of things by the guy cracking his whip and blowing a whistle and whatever. And he came away from the, the circus and he came back and said, wow, I'm so impressed that these trainers could be so skillful that these, these big, powerful animals like elephants, tigers, lions, they could train them to do what they want to do. Given that, you know, I, think, I think actually Westerners could be trained in meditation. <laughs> I think that was a compliment, but I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I'm, just, I'm still trying to digest that one. But as the year went on, as the year went on, he told me in, you know, just privately, he said, I'd really never really put my mind to achieving shamatha, but seeing how well people have done in this retreat, I think it is possible. So that was that. So there we are. Oh yeah, see if I can even have an attempt at a short answer. Could you elaborate? Yeah, I'm trying to give a short answer. <laughs> Could you elaborate a bit on how we can deepen our sense of gratitude, that is, taking gratitude as a discursive meditation? For the moment, what you attend to is reality, William James. And that is, uh, as with loving kindness, start where it's easiest. So for Tibetan, it would be easiest, or Tibetan or a, a Thai or a Sri Lankan, it would be easiest for themselves, because they don't generally have all these issues of low self-esteem. Uh, but wherever it's easiest, whether it's a, a partner, like a romantic partner, whether it's a child, a relative, a very dear friend, but in loving kindness, generally start where it's easiest, where it comes naturally, that it's nothing contrived or artificial, right? And then start extending it out and out until all the barriers are broken down. And so likewise, for gratitude, um, find the easiest one. Find the easy one. It may be for your own a mother or father. It might be a, a, an elder sibling. It could be a very dear friend. It could be a teacher. It could be all kinds of people. Um, it could also be, you know, I'll give the name Jane Goodall again, because I was just so impressed by her. But I, I kind of on behalf of primates in general, I'm grateful for her wonderful science, but also the wonderful compassion she brings to the chimpanzees, but also human beings. So our fellow, fellow species. Just such goodwill, such warmth and kindness and compassion that kind of on behalf of all the primates, Jane Goodall, thank you for your life been a good life. And I do feel grateful, you know. Um, just thank you, because I'm part of the human community and you've served us. And whether that trickle of service ever comes to me, I don't care one way or another. I don't, I, I, I don't care. It's out there. It's out there. You know? So gratitude for that and other people that you know. Uh, and they don't necessarily have to be alive either. But start where it's easier, attend closely, and just so you feel that gladness coming, that sense of gratitude, where you just want to say thank you. Thank you. And then you extend it out and out and out. 
just like loving kindness, until there are no barriers. And then, if, well, and then the final one, just like loving kindness, where you can actually extend loving kindness to a person who's harmed you and maybe still thinks ill of you. If you can actually, as I think commented was it this morning, um, actually feel gratitude for the person who's given you a hard time. Because good, this is how I really test how much my response is coming from ego, from coming from attachment and so forth. This is you giving me a real test to see where am I. Because if I'm only sur surrounded by really sweet people, nice people, admiring people, grateful people, if those are the only people I ever encounter, you know, well, then I'll like everybody around me. They're all normal. They all love me. But then what kind of protection or preparation do I have as soon as I, prepare, I encounter somebody who doesn't feel friendly? No admiration, no gratitude, no nothing. Doesn't like me. Doesn't like what I stand for. Or maybe just doesn't like people in general, and I happen to be a people. And so it just directed me to whom it may concern you, idiot. You know, and I get, oh, I'm the idiot. Oh, like that. I'm not prepared at all. It's like I've been living on pablum my whole life and never learned how to chew. So, so when harder food comes along, like a, a, a rough person, an, an, an impolite person, a rude person, let alone a, a malevolent person, I have no preparation. No preparation at all. Right? So therefore, when we encounter people who don't kill us, like there's one famous story where a person was abused, and he said, yeah, but he didn't hit me. I'm so grateful. He just abused me, but he, didn't, he wasn't physically violent. And then somebody else comes in physically violent to him. Yes, he was physically violent, but he didn't, he didn't kill me. Or he didn't torture me. He didn't torture me. He just physically, you know, just whack, but didn't torture me. And then he gets tortured. Yeah, but he didn't kill me. And then he, he killed me. And I had nothing to say. <laughs> you know? But that's where, if we're going to be, it just says we need to eat, you know, fir firmer and firmer food that needs to be chewed and all of that. Likewise, if we're going to have really spiritual strength, that we don't need, need to go from one cloistered environment to the next, you know, always trying to avoid the so-called real world, but we can travel where we will and meet who we will and know that we have that sufficient gravitas, the centeredness, the strength, the fortitude to deal with a wide variety of people. Uh, then for that, we do need difficult people. It won't happen just by encountering a lot of sweet, grateful, admiring people. So we can even be grateful for them. Your barriers are broken down. Now you can be just grateful for everybody. Okay? Maybe there's time for one quickie. Is one in one, one shamatha retreat using the method awareness of awareness, uh, now how should one utilize the four phases that Padmasambhava presents? So it can through one by one in order, starting with Maripa's teachings of throughout the day or what else. Good, very good question, and I can give a short answer. Uh, whatever suits you, whatever suits you. Now that we've gone through that cycle three times, and you know they are the four phases, and you can always go back to natural liberation. There they are spelled out. <coughs> some, I've, I've heard some of you in our one-on-one -on -one conversation say you really love that extension up to the right, left, and so forth. You really revel in that. You really enjoy it. Mind expanding. Good, then use it more. And some people like, don't really care for that one, but they like the oscillation. That really keeps them engaged and overcoming laxity and excitation. That's really helpful. And so good, then use it. And other people say, I don't really like either one of those. I like the sheer simplicity of just resting in awareness and just doing it or just being aware, in which case do that. So pick up the other ones insofar as they're helpful and then put them down as soon as they're not. Very fluid. There they are. Padmasambhapa without those four. Benchen Rinpoche taught it a little bit differently. Tsongkhapa taught it very concisely. Maitripa taught it very concisely. Whatever helps, take an utterly pragmatic approach to shamatha. Whatever helps you. So, and then finally, maybe we can finish this. Does one's experience of emptiness indirectly, does one experience emptiness, shunyata, indirectly during the jhanas? No, generally not. They're not designed to do that, and that's not a fruit of focusing on a nimit, a counterpart sign of earth, water, fire, air, and so forth, achieving first, second, third, fourth jhana, is not designed to realize emptiness. And there's really no reason to believe that you would. And there aren't reports of people realizing emptiness as a result of straight jhana practice. Could it happen in principle? Ah, sure. I mean, what couldn't happen in principle? But that's not what they were there for, and it's, it would be extremely rare for a person to realize emptiness while practicing simply the jhanas. If not, is there a Vipassana roadmap with degrees of how close you are to becoming an arya? 
and does jhana relate to the path of seeing? Um, so answer the, the final one. There is certainly some debate about this among very knowledgeable people. One person I have not met in person yet, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is really one of the best Western scholars we have of Theravada Buddhism, outstanding. He's a monk, very good monk. But I've never met him, but we've corresponded at some length. Um, his view as a very knowledgeable Theravada scholar, translator, monk, is that it's not necessary to achieve first jhana to achieve stream entry, as I recall, but to achieve once returner, non-returner, or arhatship, you must have achieved first jhana. That's his view. Now, there's one that the, his whole book, and his short book, Outstanding Scholarship by Kiminda Terra, Kiminda Terra. As I recall, he's Yugoslavian. Uh, I've read his, his writings with great appreciation. And I, must, I find that I really actually agree with his approach. He says, no, that there, there's really strong evidence that to become stream enter, you must achieve the first jhana. You must achieve it. And then he cites the Buddha, you know, just before achieving enlightenment, could the could achievement of first jhana, could, be that, could that be the way to enlightenment? The answer is yes. So he cites that, but many others. He's a, one more outstanding scholar of the Pali Canon, Theravada commentaries. Kiminda Tara says you really must achieve first jhana to achieve even stream entry and so forth. But it's not sufficient by itself. You can achieve all the jhanas and the samapatis, the absorptions in the form realm, that doesn't get you to stream entry. That doesn't get you to stream entry. Now, that is Buddhist and non-Buddhist, pre-Buddhist, uh, great sadhus, um, adepts, yogis of pre-Buddhist India, they were achieving all of those. That was not new. But at least on the basis of the first jhana, then you can go all the way. Stream entry, once return and non-return onto arhatship. First, as a samadhi basis, the first jhana is sufficient. And if you want to add to that, second, third, fourth jhana, all the richer, all the better. But I do tend to, so you can read it, draw your own conclusion. I think it's at shamata.org, if you look for it there, which is our website for shamata. I think you'll find Kamindatera's whole book. Uh, it's, it's a PDF, download it for free. It's outstanding scholarship. But now, is, are, is there a Vipassana roadmap? There is, and for that, um, of course, the, the, the roadmap would be, on the one hand, stream entry, once return or non-return for Theravada. But another very helpful one is to go over into the, the Sanskrit-based literature. Uh, and a number of you trained with the Galupa background or the Sakya tradition. They tend to be quite strong on this. Uh, read, the, read the literature. There's, a, there's enough translated now in English on the five paths. The five paths. For example, for example, the five Mahayana paths. Path of accumulation, path of preparation, path of seeing, and then path of meditation, and then finally path of no more training. Uh, but you, when you want to see the evolution of degrees of stages of realization of emptiness, that's a good place to look, because you see it in a broader context. Okay? Phew, got through all the mail. Wasn't time for open questions, but um, so that's what tomorrow is for. Okay, so enjoy your evening. See you a bit later.